Buju, everybody. Welcome to Native Lights. Where indigenous voices shine. This is episode four. I'm your host, Leah Lam. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. We hope you're all doing well. And having a good week. <laughs> I was trying to avoid that. <laughs> and a good day. Good morrow. Good morrow to you. <sighs> so as you probably already know, We've said it a few times now, the idea behind this podcast is to showcase the creativity of Native people who are connecting with their purpose and sharing their gifts, basically having their light shine. Yes. This week, we have yet another lineup of incredible people, all women. They are creating safe spaces for telling hard truths. Yeah, hard truths. Um, The subject of this week's episode can be tough to talk about or think about or listen to, We just want to put it out there. We're talking about sexual violence. Actually, we're talking about surviving sexual violence and having a big, awesome life. Even though today's topics can be difficult, I really want to hear this because I think it helps us heal. Yeah, and something that I've learned over the course of my life through maybe you, Leah, telling me, is that if you haven't experienced these hardships, just listening and hearing their story is a good start and that's what i'm going to be doing a lot in this episode great and today our producer Lori stern is back in the studio hey Lori. hi there you've been talking to a lot of people about this topic yeah and i've been listening to a lot of people about this topic um i get the sense that there's a growing awareness and there are elders um, and community leaders who want to open up spaces for young people. They want to warn young people, prepare young people, and offer pathways out of potentially violent situations. Yeah, and our first story is about one community response to sexual violence. Yeah, Sharon Day is a writer and artist who works with Curtis Kirby, a director, and together they lead a theater troupe called Akitawin. It's like an after-school program. It's all young people. And in 2018, they worked together with the Illusion Theater to write and produce a play called Everything is a Circle. I saw it, and it blew me away. So I recorded it. Everything is a Circle. So why is a play about sexual violence called Everything's a Circle? That's a good question. It starts with the idea that this kind of violence was not part of traditional Ojibwe culture. And that culture is kind of the way the community and the survivors are going to heal from the trauma of sexual violence. So here's how the play starts. Everything moves in a circle. When we come into the world, we come into the world with four gifts. The first gift is our spirit name. Even if you don't know what that name is, when you come into the world, you already have that name. The second gift is our language, Iyapi. The third gift is we have a right to our spiritual ways. Lastly, the fourth gift is free will. Some of our parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents endure trauma. What is trauma? It's when something has a lasting effect on you. When one terrible thing after another happens to your people, your tribe, your family, What a powerful summary of shared beliefs among Ojibwe and Lakota and kind of a recounting of how we got here. 
Right, and as if that chorus of youth voices isn't enough, then these grandmas take the stage and they relay what they've gone through and what their generation endured in boarding schools and how that made them go silent. You've heard the stories of the boarding schools. They took us away from our families, from our land, from our home. They cut our hair. They took away our names, called us new names, would let us speak our language. They took away our songs and our stories. They sexually abused us. Some of us disassociated. We cut ourselves, tried to leave our bodies, disassociated. We tried to run away. And we wondered if it was our fault. We tried to forget. It's like the boarding schools took every one of those gifts those young people talked about in the first part of the play. (laughs) What the audience realizes is that drugs and alcohol have been a band-aid for the historical trauma. Mm -hmm. And then the grandmas talk about how traditional Ojibwe culture has everything people need to heal from the trauma. I would love to hear that. Likewise. After everything, we are still standing. Now we are talking about the trauma, encouraging others to talk about it, get it out. We grandmas can reach over 200 people, our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. When we break the silence, we break it for all. Don't hold it in, smudge it out, sweat it out, talk it out, but get it out. Our ancestors see us forward. They see us in the future. Our ancestors saw us, and they made the way for us. Grandmas, yeah, they do reach a lot of people, you know, their children, their grandchildren, and, and their breaking of silence really does change things. Yeah, that has a big impact. And they're saying it so beautifully. Just holding it in doesn't help. And so what we're talking about today with making those safe spaces and hearing these people, this is definitely what is happening and how to help heal. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Primo. Today's episode is all about making safe spaces to talk about hard truths. And one of those hard truths is talking about experiences of sexual violence. Yeah, that means harassment, assault, incest, trafficking, all of it. And there's a growing effort to help Native women who have been in these violent and exploitive situations. Our producer, Lori, visited the YMCA in Minneapolis recently. The YMCA runs a curriculum for prevention, but the day that I visited, it was for young women who had been sex trafficked. It's a safe space for them to talk about the experience and to make safety plans. And the woman who runs the group is, her name is Jenny Miller. Um, She's a Native woman, and she's really passionate about this work. 
So the definitions of the words are up on the wall, like you know they are every week. The words on the wall are exploitation, risky behavior, disguise, vulnerability. The teenagers in the room have a lot of experience with exploitation and vulnerability. You can bring your food with you, too, if you like, whatever works best for you. And the baby, too, whatever works best. They are here because of Minnesota's Safe Harbor program. Safe Harbor says youth who engage in prostitution are victims and survivors, not criminals. In Jenny's program, they learn to recognize behaviors that put them at risk, and they make plans to keep themselves safe. That's my app collection. What's a third step we can do in the safety plan that was just described? We got the buddy system, bring somebody with you, turn your location on. We heard about the app Life360. What else can we do? Jenny has this group of young women for just six weeks. Yes. She's trying to infuse them with information, but also self-confidence. She wants them to be on alert, but also open to help. And because this is the last night of the curriculum she runs, she's saying, Goodbye, and I will care about you forever. Come on up. <laughs> My name's Alicia, and I'm a survivor. You are. Oh, I love you so much. Jenny presents each girl with a giant hug and a framed certificate of completion with her signature. The girls are thrilled to have graduated. There's a tiny exercise they do as they come up to get their diplomas. They have found new ways to describe who they are. I said, I am who I am. I am me. Oh, I love it. And your certificate. And mine says, I am not who I used to be. A lot of the stuff that Jenny is working on sounds like stuff that everybody needs. And it's really great that these young people are getting this information because, you know, in this day and age, this day and age, uh, this day and technological age, you know, uh, all the dangers that exist. There's so many people trying to exploit you. Like, it's crazy. Yeah, and we can all forget about that too. And also, you know, walking with a buddy, you know, these are things that, you know, I was taught growing up. And also, I remember mom telling me, you know, walk so many steps and look all around you, then walk again so many steps, you know, if you're walking alone, and then look all around you, like this constant awareness of where you are and who's around you. Yeah, um, me, on the other hand, like, I, I feel like I don't even have that awareness because, I don't just being a man and, you know, I don't feel like I, <laughs> I had to think about that stuff, you know? So you weren't taught that? I don't think so. Did mom just teach me that? I, I guess so. Well, I guess, you know, that doesn't... That makes sense. I, <laughs> I mean, unfortunately. And that's not to say that she didn't, you know, tell us to be careful and all and all that. But as far as like, you know, constantly looking around you, not so much. Yeah. So yeah, it's really nice to see this being taught, and I really wish all these women all the best of luck. Yeah. So Lori, what comes next for these women? You know, I didn't get to know the women very well because they're girls. They're underage. We didn't use their names, as you may have noticed, except their first names. Um, All I can say for sure is what's next for Jenny, which is that she's going to continue using this program with youth who are in the system, namely in the child welfare, child protection system. So uh, what's the name of the program in case people want to know? Right. It's a very specific 
curriculum that was developed by a national organization called Love 146. One of the things it does is this curriculum called Enough for people who have been caught up in sex trafficking. And as you heard, it teaches them like to make safety plans. It, it meets them where they are in their, you know, kind of risky lives. And it, identi- it helps them identify risky behavior and make a plan for what to do if they're caught in situations that a lot of them are familiar with. Mm, awesome. Yeah, and Jenny's a young woman herself. She really relates to these young people with tons of energy and enthusiasm. And now there's someone else I want you to meet. Um, she has a different approach. Her name is Eileen Houdan. She's a grandma and a member of the Ogichidakwe Council. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, Ogichidakwe, strong warrior woman. Yeah, and she's been working to create safe spaces for sexual assault survivors since 1978. And actually, she was one of the grandmas who was on stage at the end of the play you heard earlier. We grandmas can reach over 200 people, our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. When we break the silence, we break it for all. I've spent some time with Eileen lately, and she goes out and she talks. One one time we went to a Quaker church meeting, and she was at the homeless encampment in Minneapolis. She is all about breaking the silence around sexual violence. But, like, why is that? Like, why is there so much silence around this issue? Eileen knows a lot about silence because when she was leaving her own abusive marriage back in the late 70s, She had a hard time convincing people to believe her. She had to fight and claw her way out. It's been her experience that women carry a lot of shame and stigma, and she's devoted the last 40 years to making sure other women don't have to do that and building a network of women to help each other. Awesome. And here she is talking about what she does. I'm a member of the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition and also co-founder And I invited women to come to the annual statewide conference. And after attending that, one of the women says, well, why can't we be an advocate? I said, well, you can. And so we developed the advocacy training. The reason is to break the silence in the community. Um, The grandchildren in particular rely on the grandmas. If the grandmas learn how to be advocates, that grandchild or those friends and relatives are going to confide in her and disclose and then maybe take legal action. So that was Eileen Houdan and earlier you heard about Jenny Miller you can, you can tell that they're both really devoted, really passionate about the work. I mean, Eileen's an elder. She's been doing it 40 years, and she's just going stronger and faster. And Jenny's just getting started. So after getting to know them a little better and, you know, asking about what brought them to the work, it turns out a similar thing uh, brought them to this work. They are both children of rape. And by that, I mean they were born after their mothers were raped. So I told them about each other, and 
both of them were like, oh, I would love to meet that person. They couldn't believe there was somebody else that had that and wanted to talk about it. I I could imagine, like, I mean, to know that somebody else out there understands them, that could be, that sounds like really rare. Yeah, this seems like a really safe space for them to share. Yeah, and, and for Eileen, it was like she she said she wants people to start talking about being children of rape, like start taking the stigma away. Um, but for Jenny, it was like she was, she couldn't believe there was somebody else who had this. And it was Jenny's idea to record that conversation. They wanted people to know about it. So we're kind of in the same line of work. Yeah, absolutely. I train tribes around the country. I mean, I would mention during the keynote or workshop that I was a child of rape mm -hmm. and talk about that in the context of the larger topic of, of sexual violence. But I've only had one conversation with someone else, an wow. in-depth conversation about what that experience was like for her. Yeah. It's not something anyone talks about right. because there's no support network. Yeah. There's no, there's like nothing. nothing. And mm -hmm. I know from the stories of women that I work with, that's been a, a, an experience for them, but they won't talk about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because there isn't a path that has already been carved to doing that. And um, talking about it requires you know, one to be in their vulnerability, and then what happens from there, you know? Um, but instead of viewing it from a deficit base, I choose to view it from an empowering place. My story is a story that I'm still uncovering and is relatively new, but it also doesn't feel new. It, it feels like Things are making sense now. My uh, birth mom had me at the age of 14 and had placed me for adoption. And I, w I was born in Duluth, Minnesota, and then was in a foster home for the first um, three months of my life until my family came and got me. So I have a mother and a father and an older sister who are absolutely incredible. I feel like I won the lottery when it comes to um, families and feeling like, supported. I am 34, so nine years ago my sister had given me a 23andMe kit for my birthday. It was brand new, like 23andMe had just come out, I knew nothing of it. and. When I was registering my profile, I was like, yeah, make it public. I was thinking more of, I could learn, finally learn my medical history, because I, oh, yes. I don't know any yeah, of that. That was, that was my interest. That was yeah. my primary interest. It's like, okay, I'm not that interested in the rest of it, because it's like, it could be something that I'm not prepared to deal with. Sure. But I want to know my medical history. Yeah. And I felt like I had a right to that. Absolutely. And um, how traumatizing of an experience throughout my entire life of going to the doctor and them just giving you a form and you're like I'm adopted and they take a pen and write adopted really big on the and you're just like okay um, uh, it's little nuances that yeah. people maybe may take for granted or not even think about because right. it's not their their story 
in, let's see, it was June 9th of 2017. It was a Friday. I didn't want to get out of bed much like this morning. And so I was messing around on my phone and I saw an email come through from 23andMe and said you had a, a new relative match. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll go on there and, and check it out. This was the highest that I'd ever matched with DNA with a person before and they were likely to be my, I think second cousin is what it said. And so then I went on Facebook and searched his name and found him. And I think within 10 minutes of just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling through his photos and his comments, I saw my face on a different person say, I love you, cousin. And like everything stopped. And so then I clicked on her picture and I, yeah, I was just like, oh my God. Gosh, like I've never, I've never seen my face before, you know? Then I called my older sister who uh, always tells me like it is. And so I figured I'd tell her, look up this name and tell me what you see. I was expecting her to say like, no, you don't look alike or you're, it's all in your head. It was dead silent. And she said, holy shit. And I found my adoption papers and the little that was in there about her just was matching. Everything was like the eye color, the high school she went to. And so then on my birthday, not just this past August, but August 2017, I thought, what do you have to lose? And so I reached out and I didn't know what to say. And so I had sent her a message and I said, I'm not sure if you are who I think you might be, but if so, I just want to tell you thank you. And uh, she had written me back, who is this, and a smiley face. And then I was thinking, how do you answer that question? Who am I? Like, who am I to you? How do you answer that? You know, I don't want to disrupt somebody's life here. But, I've, but I've been waiting 33 <laughs> years to figure out, yeah, my, my story. I was creative in my response, and I said, my name is Jenny. Uh, 33 years ago today I was born in Duluth, Minnesota. And then she read, oh my gosh, and like a million exclamation points and um, happy birthday, beautiful, and I love you so much. And we've been connected very closely ever since. She said to me, how much do you want to know? And I said, I want to know everything, everything that you're willing to share with me, I'm, I'm ready for that. We come from a long line of like abuse and trauma and her mother and her siblings were all um, exploited sexually by the husband of one of them. And it was just a really intense environment is what I'm learning from when her mom was growing up that passed down to her experience with her mother as well. Two boys had uh, raped her when she was younger and they didn't know which one it was and she knew right away that the only way for us to get out of that was for her to place me for adoption and then for her to eventually run away. My story is quite different. I grew up in an extended family, so it was my stepfather's family. He's my dad in the Indian way, so never yeah. used that word step 
stepfather. Right. When I was 10 and we had moved from up north, my cousin was jealous, so she decided to tell me that my dad wasn't my dad. Yeah. So that's how I found that out. <laughs> so then it was just like a real emotional struggle from, you know, from age 10, and then it got worse as I was 12, my looks started to change, and yeah. I didn't look like any of my siblings. Yeah. So it's like, okay, my looks are changing, my mother's starting to act strangely toward me, and I knew that something bad happened with her, you know, related to my father, otherwise she wouldn't be looking at me like that. My mother was the only child of six that didn't go to boarding school. Okay. And it was because she was handicapped and couldn't climb steps. Okay. It was also a time where you would hide handicapped children away. So she didn't go out in public till she was eight. She got pregnant with me at a time that the children were being taken away left and right. And so how she managed to keep me as a 17-year-old, I have no idea. Wow. You know, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask her about and couldn't. So she talked to me about it two months before she died. Wow. I've been trying to get her to talk to me about my father for a lifetime, practically, yeah. it's like, and she's speaking to me a couple months before she died. I'm not going to interrupt her. I was standing <laughs> in the kitchen doing dishes, and I just stood there yes. for 45 minutes while she told oh, me her story. I was afraid if I turned around and faced her, she'd stop. But then at the end, she says, I found you a good family, didn't I, my oh, girl? Oh. You know, and it's just like, uh, she was a 17-year-old. Yeah. And your mom was a teenager, too. Yeah. One of the first things she had said to me was, I just wanted you to be in a two-parent household. Are you, were you in a two-parent household? And I said, yeah, my parents just celebrated their 47th anniversary um, in May. And then she, she screams, and then she says, do you know that you're black? Please tell me that you know that you're black. And I said, yes, my dad is black. And we also think he's native as well. Then she just kept crying and saying, I can't believe they listened to me. They listened to me. They, I can't believe they listened to me. That was a very strong decision yes. to make as a, she's a child. A baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And we so. We on that a lot. Yes. I, I can show you a picture. Um, so here's us meeting for the first time. She just like lets out this sigh that I feel like she's been holding in for so many years. What an amazing experience. <laughs> yeah. And to have it recorded. Yeah. And then... What an amazing photo. That's my older sister. Uh-huh. Oh. That's everybody together. Wow. <laughs> Wow. And I have a little five-year-old so awesome. nephew, and he's, he says to me, he calls me Titi. Titi, where, where, have, you, where have you been all my life? I, I know, baby, I'm, I'm here now. And, um... <laughs> 23 and Me, you have more specific results the more people that do this. 
So there's not a lot of natives that have done 23andMe. So at first or it... Or any DNA. Yes. Yeah, so like, at, we do not like that. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so at first it was all unknown. And then eventually over the years it started to come out um, Native American. And so I was telling my birth mom, I think we're Native. And she's, I think we're Native too. Then the irony of all of this is we got my parents to do 23andMe, my parents who adopted me, and my mother is pretty much 100% Norwegian, and my father is African-American, but also he's got Native in him as well. And you can tell when you look at him, but so what I am, um, it aligns with my parents that adopted me as well. It's bizarre, everything is. <laughs> I'm uncovering more and more knowledge and with that comes a great amount of, of pain. You're, it's, it's pain that's been passed down generationally. It's pain that has been um, carried on the backs of the women in this family you got to figure out what's mine to carry and what's mine to just love and... And let be. And let be, yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like I have a strong spirituality, and I've been up and down through that, being angry with God and that kind of thing, but um, I really feel like I have a special protection because of what happened to my mother. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you have that sensibility as well. Yeah, I mean, like my life... So when you originally asked me, like, why did you get into this work? It's because I know that most scenarios that start off the way that mine did do not play out that way. So I'm extremely aware of how privileged I am to have the family that I do and have the support that I do. And of course, that's God. I think it's way past time to talk about it, and I think there's a huge number of people on this planet who are children of rape. So even, even in the conversation about sexual violence, there's really not a place for children of rape. We're, we're stuck. We're stuck in the, um, it's not supposed to happen, and stuck in the shame of it all. And what we know about moving through and healing from our traumas is that you have to go through it. And that starts by having a conversation. For me, the feelings that come from that are belonging and a sense of compassion, so the space that would be occupied by maybe fear or shame um, doesn't have as much room anymore because being free, uh, being in my truth, and being um, connected are occupying more space. We've been listening to Jenny Miller and Eileen Houdon having a conversation for the very first time about being children of rape. They know there are others like them, and they want to make safe spaces to talk about it. They also want to make sure the conversation about sexual violence is framed accurately. The systems that are supposed to protect people and keep us all safe are failing. 
you know, it's public policy, it's built into institutions. Our tribes still cannot prosecute non-native men for rape. It's like predators are protected. We know the connection between foster care and trafficking of our children. And we know the high level of removal of children that takes place in this country. So there is no public policy discussion about those connections. So to just think that a organization can just pop in and, and fix this community is bullshit. And it's a narrative that a lot of the funders expect the agencies to do. And yeah. Like yeah. How do you undo colonization? You. Right. How do you undo genocide? Right. Oh, please. Well, right now, <laughs> you can start by acknowledging it, and then we can go from there. But yes. So when I worked as a sexual assault advocate at the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center, I'd have young women referred to me. Mm -hmm. They came to the attention of the juvenile justice system because they were skipping school, using drugs, whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. Then they would go through this incarceration, go through drug and alcohol treatment. And in drug and alcohol treatment, they're not allowed to talk about the past because the past is gone. So if you're in foster care and you've experienced sexual assault, sexual violence, which is um, a very common narrative that I've heard, I don't feel like I'm in control right now, and the home is either triggering or is the source of that pain. So what's my solution? I'm, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to run away and get out of here. So when I run away, guess what happens? My social worker issues out a bench warrant for my arrest. If the institution's response is just to uh, issue out a warrant and have them further system involved, what, what are we doing to set young people up for success in their future? Okay, so this, this is one of my thoughts. I think that the juvenile justice system is filled with compassionate people. I believe the institution is so tightly structured that they're not able to change their institution. Mm -hmm. One thing I'd love to see is the opportunity for them to do that uh -huh. because they totally get it. Uh -huh. Sometimes I feel that same way. Let me see how many young people I can help before the system catches me. <laughs> you know, because if you're going to issue out a bench warrant for a youth that's on run, chances are they're going to call us and, and you tell us that we can't work with them. This is why we are providing sexual assault advocacy training to community women because mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to tell a grandma what she can or cannot do in helping her own grandchild or great-grandchild. Right. She can pretty much do what she wants. We've been listening to Jenny Miller and Eileen Houdon having a conversation about being children of rape. I'm really grateful I feel like even though the topics brought up today were heavy, I feel energized by them. Just by seeing the work of these women, it's like this transformation that has been built in bringing community together around listening to tough topics. There's so much energy behind it. Even when Jenny Miller was talking to the group of young people, they were cheering for each other, right? They're survivors and cheering and being happy for each other. That's where I found deep significance because, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of tears too, but just hearing that like support 
is where I find so much positivity and energy. Mm-hmm. You get a little goosebumps listening to that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. If you or someone needs more resources on sex trafficking, help is available at the National Sex Trafficking Hotline. You can call 1-888-373-7888. Again, the number is 1-888-373-7888. We're going to end today's episode with a song from Eileen Houdon. She's a member of the Ogichidaque Council. She leads a healing drum circle at the Elders Lodge in St. Paul. It's another space she's creating for healing. The group brings their songs and strength to places that need it. This is Eileen leading her group singing the Strong Woman song. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Jenny Miller and Eileen Houdon for sharing their stories. And thank you to the Aikidoan Theater Troupe. Thanks also to our engineer, Justice Sanchez, our project manager, Aaron Warhol, producers, Lori Stern, and Melissa Townsend. You're listening to the Strong Woman song from the Healing Circle. Cole and I created the rest of the music for this episode. I'm Leah Lamb. And I'm Cole Primo. See you next time. Gigwabaman. Gigwabaman.
Native Lights Podcast, where Indigenous stories shine, is a production of Minnesota Native News and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Native Lights Podcast is made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota.